We're in this wonderful series uh, about uh, familiar, uh, famously unfamiliar texts. They're known to us, the, some of us have them on coffee mugs or wall hangings or embroideries or just on our lips. Uh, but they often are uh, rested from their context and no longer really challenge us. And maybe we take a slice of the truth that just um, reconfirms us in maybe some of the ways we already are living and we leave them barren. And so the verse we're gonna look at uh, in its full context is Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans uh, to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And what's interesting about that verse is that was not the kind of preaching that got Jeremiah thrown in the stocks in chapter 20. Uh, thrown in prison uh, in chapter 28, uh, thrown into a cistern and opposed and, and nearly killed, uh, it actually really lines up with what the false prophets were saying if you take it out of context. Because the false prophets in Jeremiah's day were saying what many false teachers say in the name of God today, and that is prosperity now. Find, find your prosperity now apart from any surrender and for any um, inbreaking of God's kingdom agenda in your life. And you've got to see that in the context of this verse, this verse was written to a people who were called to submit to the most painful and passionately desired but unanswered prayer that they had prayed. There's a... Uh, pastor in China who uh, was talking about all, uh, was being talked to by all, about all the converts. You know that China has more people worshiping Jesus today than all of the uh, churches in Europe and America combined. It's an amazing move of the spirit. But he, he was speaking with, uh, saying, this is amazing, all these believers in China worshiping. And he said, yeah, but he says, my concern is that a lot of these people who were showing up in some of the state churches anyway, are just one unanswered prayer away from converting back to Buddhism. I believe that is something that can be true of you and me. <laughs> that, that our surrender to the claims of God in our life sometimes could be so thin that if it's scratched away with the veneer of something that we earnestly love and desire and want to see happen, but God says no, that we're ready to revert back, maybe not to Buddhism, but maybe to just a stone cold unbelief and lack of surrender to the God who has something better for us. So Jeremiah 29 comes with a letter that had to be hard to read. We're gonna, we're gonna read it in its context, but it was a letter sent to a people who had been dragged hundreds of miles out of their home against their will into exile by a foreign king. They no longer had the three marks that made Israel Israel. They no longer had their land. They no longer had their temple. They no longer had their king. And they're being told that they are called to live in that foreign land, not just as those who are trying to scrape together their own existence, profiteering, but they're being called to live as those who bless the city into which God says he had carried them. They did not want to be there. And God says, your prayer is eventually going to be answered, but it's going to be answered 70 years from now. How many of you have an earthly desire that if you were told, hey, you'll get it in 70 years, would be encouraged? I'll be 125 years old in the year 2090. 
not going to do me much, that much good. And, and so um, this letter comes to them, and you'll see that this promise comes after a lifetime, a life sentence of a denied desire. So hear the word of God as we dig in. The first five verses, four verses are just the introduction. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. They're just no prophet, priests, artisans, craftsmen, all the elite. They're gone. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And it said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now this exile, you know that God says, I carried you there. <laughs> so they, they were there uh, because they had really messed up their commission in following God. <laughs> Um, they were there because they had messed up and God had proven true to what he had said earlier in his world. They're, 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 they're in this mess because God put them there and they had forgotten God in Israel. It's kind of this perfect justice where God says, I gave you the land of Israel and you served foreign gods while you were in the land of Israel. So I'm gonna take you out of Israel and put you in a foreign land where you will now learn to serve me. And the, the basic reason for, for that was given all the way back in Exodus 22. And Jeremiah preached it in, in chapter seven when they were saying, hey, we're protected people. 
We're God's chosen people because we have the temple of the Lord. And in Jeremiah chapter seven, uh, Jeremiah preached this very unpopular sermon. (laughs) He said, you must amend your ways and deeds. And if you will execute justice for one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, or shed innocent blood, and if you don't go after the other gods, then I'll let you dwell in this place. Um, In the land that I gave in old to your fathers forever. God was saying the rent for being my favored people is to be surrendered in obedience to me. And he had said this all the way back in Exodus. In Exodus 22, and you might want to check this out on your own sometime, but Exodus 22, 21, God says it like he means it. I mean, God always means it, right? But, but try this one on for size. This is just in the ESV. God says to Israel through Moses, he says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, basically is the equivalent of an immigrant or refugee, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And then he says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. I haven't seen that verse inscribed on many wall hangings. Wow. And so God is saying, here's the deal. You live for me to my glory and you have my unique protection. But if you fake it and you just claim the temple and ritual religiosity sets you apart, then I'm not having it. And you will be carried away. And that's exactly what had happened. They were now carried away on waves and waves of invasions to the point where now people were tearing down their houses to patch up the wall, to try to to batten down the hatches to prevent themselves from being carried away. But now all all of the, the leaders, the key court officials, the elite, if you know the book of Daniel, Daniel and the young men, they're all carried away. They're, they're all living in Babylon. And in the midst of this, in chapter 28, right before this chapter, you've got the false prophets who are using God's name and saying, this is just a temporary inconvenience. The false prophet Hananiah said, uh, this is all gonna blow over in two years and we'll all be coming back. And they were persecuting Jeremiah, seeking to intimidate and threaten him within the confines of the land of Israel and basically saying, stop preaching this long-term stuff. Stop, stop preaching that it's our fault. Stop preaching that God put us here to basically purge the idolatry out of our hearts. Stop preaching that stuff. And they were using the name of the Lord. They were using all the religious speech. Um, they had the same vocabulary, but they did not have the same dictionary. Do you know what I mean? That's the most dangerous thing, is when people use God words and spiritual piety just to endorse an agenda that does not mean what God means for it to mean. Beware of preachers that have the same vocabulary, but if you press them, what does that really mean? They're not using God's dictionary. And these prophets, when they spoke of prosperity, they were speaking of a self-defined, narrow, nativistic, nationalistic, Israel first, 
kind of agenda when God had said, I appointed Israel to be a light to all of the nations. And so it had to be a shock to them when you get to, to verse five in this text. And at verse five, God is saying, build houses and settle down. They, they wanted to just rent and not really invest. Tells them to plan generationally, marry, have sons and daughters, increase in number. They're gonna raise their grandchildren in this foreign land. Verse seven was the real shocker. Put verse seven up. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you. Seek the peace and prosperity of these idolaters who violently overthrew us. I, I think, and, and what had to be even more shocking when he, said, when he says, pray to the Lord for this city of Babylon. Pray to the Lord for Babylon. Uh, at this point, I gotta tell you, I'm not even sure that they thought that they could pray in the city of Babel for Jerusalem. <laughs> but now they're called to pray in the city of Babel for Babel. Uh, Psalm 122, the, the famous verse, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, right? That, that's, that's what made sense to them. Uh, if they were gonna pray for Babel, well, they would pray for God's vengeance to come upon them, right? They'd pray, you know, Psalm 137, where it said, you know, God, do to them what they did to us. They took our children, they, they killed them, they, they raped, they pillaged, they destroyed. Do that to them. And God says, no. He says, my liberty, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn you from just selfish framed mourners about your own fortunes into missionaries that actually have a global agenda. And God, God defines that, that mission. And, and so when they're there, God doesn't want his people there. And this informs a kingdom agenda here. He doesn't want his people to build walls around their homes and build a little parallel separated culture. That's what the false prophets were saying. They said, we're just gonna be here short term. Let's all hunker down. Let's, you know, let's create our own little system where we live parallel lives, but we don't really intersect with the culture around us. And, and that's what the false prophets were doing. And God was saying, no, seek the good of the whole city. Pursue the social and spiritual well-being of the community. And this word peace means all aspects of the well-being and prosperity of the city. Just like we're called to pursue the good of Doylestown, not necessarily the good that Doylestown wants, but the good that Doylestown needs. And if we pursue it in the shalom, shalom is an all-inclusive word. You know, if, if you have an all-inclusive cruise and everything is on it and served to you, this is an all-inclusive blessing. It means restoration spiritually with God. So it, it involves the proclamation of how we as sinful people can be made right with God in our spirits, but it involves all of the things that ripple out from that in our own individual identity, in our relationships, in, in, in how we pursue our vocations and our callings. And he says, pursue that. And again, the false prophets are saying, don't really move into the city, treat it like a tourist. Just take advantage of it, exploit the city, use the city. What was interesting in that is that the Babylonians had a unique strategy. They, they didn't destroy the countries they conquered. That was just an awful lot of bloodshed to kill everybody. 
And they didn't do what many of the conquering countries do. They didn't just make them subservient and enslave them because you know that could cre create a lot of resentment and they might rise up and kill the people who are oppressing them. And so what the Babylonians did is, is much of what our culture wants to do to us. They say, hey, come on, just blend in. Just become assimilated and, and get in lockstep with the same values and the same uh, way of life that we have and we'll get along great. And here's what the word of God says. It says that the moment that you and I receive Jesus Christ as our king, the moment that in a sense we are born again through believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we become resident in two cities. We get dual citizenship. We're still citizens of the place that, and the city and the country we live in, but we're also citizens of heaven. And you know how we really show that we're citizens of heaven, not just the earthly city? It's that we live for the benefit of others. The, the hallmark of the, of the people who live for the city of God, and um, Augustine in the fourth century wrote a tremendous book on the city of God and the city of man. He says the best citizens in the earthly city, uh, in the, who are citizens of the heavenly city, show up by the way they live in the earthly city. They don't just use their careers and their resources and their energies to accumulate for themselves more and more. Uh, they don't move into the city just to create a little tribalized ghetto that lives apart from the city, but they seek the shalom of all the people in the city. And he says that they're to work for it, they're to invest for it, they're to buy real estate, and they're to pray for it. I think this word, this instruction to pray for it, I mean, if there was ever a temptation to be filled with bitterness and hatred, it would have been for this people that were carried away and saw all of their friends and their family carried away. And there's something about prayer. When you pray for someone, it makes it very hard to multitask hatred and bitterness in your heart and pray for them. I find it interesting, Daniel got this letter, if you know the book of Daniel. And when Daniel was in Babylon, I think that uh, one of the things about Daniel we know is he prayed and he prayed for Babel and he prayed for Israel and he confessed his own sin as just like he was as guilty as anyone in Israel for their sin. But he also related to the Babylonian leaders with an incredible amount of not just deference, not just respect, but I think you would have to say an incredible amount of gracious love. In Daniel chapter four, again, this young man who was taken in his childhood away, we see him interact with King Nebuchadnezzar. And I just wanna read you this verse from Daniel and just see if, if you don't think like I, that he had to be informed by these verses in this letter. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, again, who was his oppressor. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Man, that sounds like somebody who's already forgiven their enemies. Sadly, it says that Nebuchadnezzar forgot Daniel's advice. So again, God eventually disciplined the Babylonians, including Nebuchadnezzar. But he had this kind of wholesale commitment to his community. And I think this tells us something about how we're to live missionally. We're to live liberated lives. They were liberated from resentment to 
resent their oppressor to serve their oppressors. We're called to live liberated lives, but liberated to serve and seek the prosperity of others. You know, God is interested in a sense in a prosperity. It's just global prosperity. It's just breaking out of our narrow confines. It, it reveals all of the counterfeits, like the, the, the counterfeit of our own little individualistic American dream that sometimes um, wants to candidate for a place in our hearts. It's so unworthy of a calling. It, it liberated Israel from a narrow nationalism. It liberates you and me from a selfish life, from seeking a prosperity that tries to have our own way. God's promise to Abraham was that he and his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations. I'm sure that Israel said, hey God, couldn't you exempt the nations that are actually our enemies? And God says, no, it's all inclusive, all nations. And he calls them to live out this, this powerful hope. It changes us from, from tribalistic, individualistic people into globalists who show that the heart of God is that we live for what will make the world better. And I think this is one of the points that people are most skeptical about, people who have religious convictions and particularly people who are Christians today. I don't know that we have a very high credibility as a people to say, oh yeah, those Christians, I know that what they want is really an inclusive good that encompasses the globe, that encompasses all people. There was a poll that asked people, who would you want to live next door to you as a neighbor? And people who are devout followers of Christ rank very low on the scale. And I, I'm, I think this text is a is a challenge that we would live out the calling of our lives in such a way that it would refute any idea that we were only after preserving our own liberties and freedoms and prosperity, but that we had something in mind that was to bless the world. I was moved recently in hearing about, uh, again, the nation of China and in the midst of the coronavirus, Christians who lived in some of those affected areas were called together by Christian leaders. Now, these are Christian leaders that are housing secret house churches. And they said to one another, they said, we discern through prayer that this is our hour. And we are not going to walk through this silently or secretly. And so they have come out in public as believers and they have gone out into the neighborhoods with Christian literature, sometimes handwritten verses from the scriptures put together uh, to their neighbors saying, this, we don't know what's going to happen with this coronavirus, but we have a hope that we are not content to keep to ourselves and we are sharing our hope in Jesus Christ with you and we are also telling you that because we do not fear death, when you get sick, if you get sick or anyone in your household, we will come and care for you. Is that not incredible? Would that not stretch the credibility of Christians? In the Roman Empire, when there was a plague in the fourth century, this is exactly what Christians did through the plague. And so Christians, because they did not have a limited hope only in surviving in this life, took care of people who had experienced the pestilence do you think that when those people whose families, whose blood family abandoned them, but who had Christians 
who they had never really understood before, nursed them to health, recovered. You think they were a little more open to the gospel? <laughs> they were. <laughs> and in many ways, that's the explanation for how Christianity moved from being a very tiny minority sect to having sway with the Roman Empire. This text is all about kingdom agenda. It's about a universal agenda where God's heart is so big that it shines for the universe. And it shines forth that God's kingdom is one that is a globalist nationalist agenda. Folks, if we've been sold a narrow vision, we need to rid ourselves of it. The, the American dream is not a biblical dream. Having a little piece of personal prosperity and property and seeking your own little piece, cordoning off your prosperity from the rest of the world, a kind of rugged individualism, the attitude that says, well, I don't wanna have to pay for something I'm not benefiting from. Um, the lack of collective commitment to the good of others is dishonoring to Jesus. That's what got Jeremiah thrown into the stocks. He wouldn't play along with it. The kind of tribalism that just focuses on what's good for me and the taking of for my family, my, even my nation, that doesn't think about global impact is exactly the kind of vision that God sends his prophets to blow to smithereens. The kind of narrowness that in our society today leads to a kind of selfish interest, a kind of xenophobia, fear of strangers, the derision of people who are different, uh, the speaking even of immigrants as those people or people who are draining our healthcare and our welfare resources, or even worse, sometimes in the culture, even among believers, I hear things of, that are really rooted not in the heart of Jesus, but they're angry nativism and xenophobic nationalism that calls an immigrant woman's pregnancy an anchor baby. <laughs> Folks, that's not part of the heart of the God who has saved us for a global ministry. That kind of language about foreigners and immigrants mirrors the cruel language about the unborn as simply products of conception. And if we don't recognize that, we're not recognizing the comprehensive heart of God for all people. You know, Jesus, if he had preached that, I mean, if Jeremiah had preached that, he would have been carried around on people's shoulders and celebrated. He would have been revealed to be false, but he would have been celebrated. If Jesus had preached that kind of theology, he would have lived to ripe old age and never been opposed if he had preached prosperity now, the gospel of nationalism and individualism, give a nod to God. If he had domesticated the kingdom of God uh, to look like what passes for Christianity in much of our own hearts and spheres. <laughs> he would have never been opposed if he had simply said, believe in God and make him your personal mascot to get your agenda fulfilled on earth. But no, Jesus has a prosperity that is far more ambitious for us. He has a prosperity that includes others and it comes through a bloody cross. And not only through the bloody cross that gives us a salvation through his sufferings, but then a cross that says, having received this salvation, now you're lived to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And I think one of the tests for us is to say, what am I doing now and what am I investing in and what am I seeking now that will be bearing fruit 70 years from now in the year 2090? And frankly, we can expand that to say, what am I doing now that will actually make a difference a million years from now? 
I find it really interesting, and if you read on in Jeremiah, and I wish we could just do a whole series through this, really, but in chapter 32, it's fascinating because the Babylonians, again, they came in waves, but they're building up this siege ramp. So imagine you've got a house in Israel, and again, everybody's tearing out walls and trying to patch the defending walls against the city, but the Babylonians are just tearing it down, tearing it down. And as they're building up the siege ramps, and it's, it's absolutely certain that the Babylonian army is gonna come and level all of the houses, and nothing is gonna survive, God speaks to Jeremiah, and he says, I want you to buy a piece of real estate. And so he sends him his cousin, who owns a piece of property in, Benj in, in, in Benjamin's territory, and he tells Jeremiah, I want you, who, now look, if you know anything about real estate, who buys real estate when that real estate and the whole town is about ready to be occupied by foreigners and everything's gonna be thrown away, including the rule of law and including all the title deeds. Property values are gonna plummet, right? And God says, no, Jeremiah, I want you to buy and I want you to pay a fair market price with 17 pieces of silver. I want you to buy this property. And so he does. This is the most ridiculous real estate deal um, that I think you could find in scripture except for, the, for one other deal. And that's the deal when Jesus Christ decided, not with 17 pieces of silver, but with his own lifeblood to actually buy property in the worst neighborhood, in the most dilapidated condition, property otherwise that could be described as my life, my heart, my person. That was a kingdom investment. And, and Jeremiah was called to put the title deed in a clay jar and hide it away where it can be preserved because God says 70 years from now, which was like an eternity to these people because they would all be in eternity, he says, I'm gonna bring Israel back. And the amazing thing is that God did it. Do you know the, the miracle of the exile was there's never been a people, there've been many people who were exiled, their country destroyed, carried away, but there's never been a people who had that happen to them who actually survived it. But Israel did. And they, before this happened, they were constantly relapsing into following fake idols. And you know what happened after this? After this happened, Israel has never ever again flagrantly set up idols or tolerated idols in their temple again. God cured them of it because of this incredible experience of suffering. And that is what the investment of Jesus Christ is designed to do for you and me. It's to enable us to live as a kind of resident alien. We live in the city that we're in, but we, we don't march to its drumbeat. We live differently in terms of, of our goals and as a, as a sign of the fact that we are, we belong to Jesus. We're willing to attach ourselves to the most unlikely prospects for his name. You know, just this week, it's something you can celebrate. I, I got word that in a land where nobody's buying property, the nation of Zimbabwe, because things are just such, so turned upside down, no rule of law. Through your donations, through your zeal, we were able to buy a property that uh, at its height probably would have been worth more than half a million dollars. But for a couple hundred thousand dollars, it was bought at a time when nobody really is buying land and it's devoted to those who really no one is able to invest in the, the age out orphans. And that 
Beautiful property, has a beautiful house and a second house on it and room to build a third and to plant gardens and training centers and vocational work. Who invests in that kind of thing? Jesus does. That's what he does. He's building his kingdom here. It is, he's calling us to be that kind of resistant force. To be a people that because we believe in Jesus and we believe that he has done the unthinkable, invested in us, that we also are automatically enrolled in the future of the city of God and we show it now. And that we're willing to lose something of the city possessions of this world so that we can be salt and light in the city that is now and that will be for all eternity. Folks, do you know you're part of this city? Do you live for that future? It's such a glorious thing to be liberated from the petty little narrative that seeks a hope and a future just for ourselves. God says, I've given you so much more. And I've given you the opportunity to live for this now. You know, the old song Frank Sinatra made famous was that, you know, if you can make it in New York, if you can make it there, you'll make it anywhere. If, if in New York, the critics love you. If in New York, you make the headlines. If in New York, you have a ticker tape parade and applause and acclaim and you live in a mansion, you know you've made it. Well, that's not where we make it. Jesus gives us something so infinitely better that if we've made it into the city of God, we know that we have a mansion in the truly greatest city in the universe that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And there's applause and there's acclaim and there's a ticker tape, ticker tape parade for our Savior Jesus who has liberated us to live for God's fame in this city forever. Do you know that hope? It's the greatest hope. It's the greatest way you could ever live. It's the best, most lasting, most joy-filling. It will put a energy and power and lasting impact into your life like there is no other place for it. And it's all because of what Jesus calls us to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have these wondrous plans for us. Plans to prosper us. Plans to give us a future and hope to be a kingdom people. With the breadth of love that Jesus calls us to as a people who live as citizens of the globe for the kingdom of Christ. Oh Lord, how our world needs that. How even our community of Doylestown needs that. How we need that. And we ask, O oh Lord, that as we come around your table now, that we might recognize the great price Jesus paid to enroll us in the city of God so that we can live in this city with a confidence and abandonment and freedom that can only give credibility to the life you've called us to in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.